Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. As you know, our motto is, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. This guy who's going to be on today is a model of exactly that. He has done some absolutely amazing things, things that blow your mind. Two-time Paralympic gold medalist in the 100 meters, three-time Paralympian, first amputee to go sub 100 in, or sub 11 in the 100 meters, two-time ESPY award winner, held world records in 100, 200. Uh, we, we've got to talk about the, the high jump at some point, what broke a world record before you even knew that you were even competing. Uh, long jump as well. I mean, this is, this is Marlon Shirley is one of the most amazing athletes that you will ever meet. And he just happens to be a great guy too. So Marlon, thank you for joining us. Well, I appreciate you having me. I'm really excited about this. It's going to be really, it's going to be very, very uh, interesting to, you know, recall a lot of this, the things that we kind of suppress. And I'm really looking forward to reliving a lot of the moments that, uh, you know, us people in our, in our challenge community um, have been, been a part of for sure. You know, I mean, it's a really interesting thing in that, that you were talking as we were talking beforehand that like, that you had retired and that, that you pretty much uh, left the sport. And some of that can be really challenging, right? The whole idea of what do we do afterwards, after our sport? But before we get to that, can we go back and in the introduction, you know, talking about gold medals in the 100 meters, going sub 11, what did you look at and say, that was the most important one? That was the one where that's me. The most important accomplishment really became what led to me breaking 11 seconds and it was a decision that a decision that I made that was completely against the grain and that was to go with a very small company in the prosthetic community so I had the ability to be able to make modifications and changes to the designing of the foot that I would be running on to be able to accomplish my goals in the sprints um but there are so many factors that, you know, that happen on the track, as you well know. I mean, there's rain, there's headwinds, there's tailwinds, everything's got to be sanctioned. Uh, but I would say for sure, break in 11 seconds in the 100 was the biggest accomplishment that I had on the track, most definitely. Were you looking at that? I mean, I'd imagine as it got closer, you were looking at 11 seconds saying, that's the threshold, that's what I have to break. But as you were coming up, did you think that that was something that was possible? See, I never started as a sprinter, you know, not to digress, but I never started as a sprinter. So within two years, I learned how to sprint and what brought me into my first Paralympics in Sydney, where I won a gold and broke the world record. But as far as the possibilities of breaking 11, absolutely, it was possible. Uh, my times were, you know, nobody would believe it. I was running well over 12 seconds up into almost the 13s. But again, I was not a sprinter. Um, it's just I have to have certain certain levels that I that I have to reach. I'm a data driven 
person. I love data. I love filming myself running. I love looking at the biomechanics. I love force plates. I love anything that has to do with data and applying that in, 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 in an applied force and using all the kinetic energy that I can get back from my prosthetic and from the track to be able to propel myself. So to break 11 seconds wasn't a matter of if I could, it was when I did it, would it be at a sanctioned meet? Would the head, would the, would the wings be right? Would it be sanctioned and qualify as a world record? That was the biggest hurdle that I had to face, honestly, was doing it when it mattered the most. How did you have those analytical skills? Because I remember you watching, I mean, you were early on with like the iPad and actually it was probably pre-iPad, wasn't it? It was on your, on your laptop where you were watching your starts and watching your sprinting and, and breaking it all down. Where did you get the, the analytical skills to be able to say that's important, that's not important? I just always had this mindset of just being curious. I love figuring things out. Even as a child, I was just always fascinated with things that flew and things that went fast. You know, some people are just really just born with that type of ability to think like that. And that might be because you're gifted in that way, or it might be because you're not as gifted in being able to sit there and, you know, listen to a lecture, like somebody like me. <laughs> and so I'm a very hands-on person. I, you know, I, I, I just love watching the world move and I love watching how other people make things move. And I absolutely love engineering. Um, you know, and so looking at something where I know there is a more efficient way for it to be done, you know, not reinventing the wheel, but just a more efficient way. So there's less resistance, better angles to where you're not working against yourself, any breaking forces, all of those things are, were just there. I would even be working on the farm and just find, you know, something that would maybe take an hour, try to find a way to make it take 20 minutes and spend, you know, six hours trying to design something to do it. <laughs> so it was really more intuitive than anything else is what you're saying? Yes, that's fair, yep. Interesting. Now, Paralympics, I mean, you, you, you won gold medals, you broke world records, you won world championship gold medals. And, and there are people who come into the games who don't know about the games. But this, in some ways, the Paralympics couldn't have been further from your existence than than anything how did how did it happen that you ended up finding finding the paralympics I, i'm trying to figure out actually in some ways we've got to go a ways back right can i can i reframe that question so, so one of your biggest one of the, some of the biggest publicity that you've ever received and i look at this like biggest publicity i ever received was being in people magazine you know 50 most beautiful people in people people magazine for you, it was Sports Illustrated. And it was this amazing article about your life. And, and looking at that, like where you started in your life and ending up in the Paralympics, how did that, how did that happen? But also looking at the, at the Sports Illustrated article where it was, it was raw. Like it was, it was as honest as possible. There was nowhere to hide how did that feel to you having that be the most 
public you'd ever been really probably? You know, there's, you know, so that's a great question. And in, in, in three parts, I could answer like this, you know, learning of the Paralympics was an absolute accident. I was a state high jump, you know, champion. I was, you know, always ranked top six in, you know, well, not only Utah, but in the West, I went to what you're probably pretty familiar with. Uh, it's called the Simplot Games. And I went there in high school. Um, and I didn't know anything about the Paralympics at all. I had been high jumping since I'd been in elementary school. I was always, you know, number one or number two at our school in the high jump. And I jumped very unorthodox. I did not do a Fosbury flop. No offense, Dick. Love you. But I would do a front flip over it because I would take my leg off and hop to the bar and then jump head first. When I went to... Pocatello, Idaho to compete in the Simplot Games. I went there hopefully trying to get some type of contract, uh, sorry, some type of uh, scholarship to be able to go to school. Um, at that meet, guy comes to me named Brian Hoddle, says, you ever heard of the Paralympics? It's like, no. He's like, you just broke the world record by 10 inches. I jumped six feet, seven inches, I believe there. And without my leg on, I'm about five foot 10. Um, and that was how I got introduced to the idea of the Paralympics. Um, I ended up coming down to Chula Vista, California, um, not too far from where I'm at right now in Southern California, and went to a, an event called the Paralympic Revival. Um, I went there and there's a gentleman named uh, Charlie. He was a world record holder at the time and I had never seen another amputee before, maybe once, if ever. And so it was a uh, very different seeing nothing but MPTs and people with disabilities. And I went there and I ended up breaking the, the world record. And that's when I truly got found um, in the prosthetic community and in our disabled community with the disabled sports USA, especially, um, you know, from there, I ended up making a big decision to leave uh, in April of, of 97 and move to Washington state and train full-time with Brian Hoddle and Tony Volpin Tess, greatest sprinter I've ever seen as an amputee to this day. And, and that's where Paralympics was introduced to me. When it came to making myself vulnerable as far as you know, telling a story that is very intimate to me, because um, it does involve my mother and it involves some very, you know, difficult things, you know, for anyone to have to, you know, recall or want to recall, it all came down to trusting the person that was, that was writing that article. The way that article in Sports Illustrated, and mind you, that was actually a front cover article at Sports Illustrated, but Steve Nash kind of did something which kind of put him on the cover. So they still put me on the cover, but we'd already did this huge spread. I allowed Scott Price to have 110 percent full access and I didn't want to know anything. I, you know, told him everything I knew and then all of their, you know, how it works on the back end with, you know, fact checkers and investigating and all this stuff. I was introduced to more of my life than I would have ever had known uh, because I gave him 100%, um, you know, access, which was trust. And that was not built overnight. It took years for me to even allow HBO Real Sports to do their first documentary. Um, and, it and it comes down to trust. 
you know, so as a journalist, especially like, you know, host, I mean, somebody like yourself, you know, this is how, you know, you're able to get people like, you know, myself who are excited to be able to tell, you know, certain parts of our story, uh, because it's hard for somebody like me, given my background to really trust that it's going to be done in a tasteful way, in the right way. But the only thing that I can do is to make sure that it is 100% honest and not influenced by me at all. And so that's why that was so raw. I didn't know about it until I read about it. Really? So how much did you know? I mean, you knew some of this stuff, right? I mean, you knew, I mean, you were kind of like running around some gangs in Las Vegas when you were a little kid uh sort of semi-homeless foster care that kind of stuff but but you didn't know a lot of the other stuff or what right so anything that i lived through i remember like you know i mean i remember as far back as being three um i remember a lot what what i refer to is knowing like finding out what i found out about my biological mother's side of the family finding out about you know you know their views on um, African-Americans and kind of, you know, that, that, that other stuff. The racism um, and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, and it being one of the, it being the causation of, you know, me even being put in a position to lose my foot as when I was pulled off the streets by social workers. Um, it was actually, you know, that's when I found out that it was actually my mother's father, biological mother's father who called them to get me off the streets and when they said we didn't pick him up that's when it was like well no but he was a very successful uh aviator um so some things maybe just being the genes because obviously i love aviation <laughs> knowing my family does aviation my dad you know worked for thicol which you know built the boosters for the shuttles you know so there's always been some influence with that but i um you know i, I it's there's no better opportunity for somebody like myself to learn about more about myself than when I'm able to, you know, just to talk the way that I did in that article. It's not a new discovery. It's a discovery that I've avoided, didn't want to know, because I'm not the type of person that needs to know where I've been to know where I'm going. I know what I like. I know what I went through and we can talk about that. But discovering, you know, the, the, the nasty side of people isn't something that I you know that I choose to do, but it needed to be done. And it just needed to be done by a professional. And again, someone I trusted. Um, and so I'm going to say it was a great thing, but it was a very, um, it was the right thing to do. And um, definitely, definitely gave a lot more purpose to some of the accomplishments that I was able to do on, on the track and off the track for sure. What is that story? I mean, obviously this is a really personal story for you because it's your story, but what does that story mean to other people? I mean, you look at it and go, I've given them my story. What's, what's the hope that somebody's going to learn from that story? Well, you know, just a good a quick recap, you know, many people may not have, you know, read my story, see my story is that, you know, my mother was a prostitute, my biological father was a pimp, and she was one of many of uh, the women that he, you know, that he had control over and he would get, he would 
get them pregnant and in order to be able to control, you know, that woman, my biological mother, she, you know, that was her life. She was a work, she was a working girl, but I, you know, but I, I lived, you know, I was, I remember everything. And so that's just kind of like the background, you know? And so later on in life, I get adopted. I end up getting abused so badly that I have to lie to the teacher, tell them I got hit by a car. I was riding my BMX bike. I come back home. There's nothing there in my room. Social workers then take me back to the children's home again. And then I get adopted by my family now, which is the Shirley's and my mom and dad who are my mom and dad. So I really, if I, you know, when I say mom and dad, I mean, this is, you know, this is Marlene, this is Carrie, that's my family. That's, you know, that's what happened when I was a nine and a half, you know, they're my family, um, you know, but with my biological mother, you know, that is where, you know, living on the streets, living with homeboys, not even having anyone to take care of us, but each other. Um, but it was, it was, didn't know any differently. You know, and so with that being said, um, having, you know, giving access, I didn't even say access, but like giving true access to, you know, to, to somebody that's a responsible journalist um, is going to only make you more, more confident in all the doubts that you have as, you know, as, you know, somebody who may be a public figure or somebody who may be influential or, you know, or most importantly, so many others out there because there's a lot more people that you know that are you know not like you and I that are a lot like you know the the life that I lived and are living and have lived it and never never had the opportunity the blessing to ever have love religion relationship and that all coming in at nine and a half years old um, it's not my it's not my place in the world to hold that story um, you know privately it's something that is, is has to be shared with not only you know others living in the, those type of situations but those who helped you know provide for me um you know who who you know who, who were responsible for taking care of me while being social workers i mean the just the accident of me losing my foot as a five-year-old in the children's home i mean the tr tr trauma it would have been for those caretakers you know it's it's if if we are going to put ourselves in a position where we want to do great things and be able to have fans recognize you know whatever it is that we're trying to be a part of or trying to build like with me was the paralympics you know us paralympics didn't exist when i started that was a big part of, of uh, my mission that i was you know being able to be a part of then you also need to not make yourself vulnerable, but definitely need to be, you know, able to tell, tell, tell your truth. And that's something that, you know, we will always, and we'll always work and strive for, um, you know, and so that article, and I'm sorry to go, go a little bit long-winded, was very, was very difficult. And it is the toughest thing I've ever done in my life. Because of course, you can imagine being a sprinter, and Chris, you know me well enough, kind of a control freak. Just, I control my environment. Don't think that's anything that's too bad. But, but you know, you only have 10 seconds to run the most, most perfect race of your life. 
once every four years. So controlling your environment is something that, you know, can be a negative or be a net positive. And that's just kind of how um, my ether worked, uh, controlling the information that came in, had people to buffer it and, you know, just made sure that I had the people around me that I trusted the most. You said it was a difficult thing when you approached that article. When you look back on it now, is it something that you celebrate? Is it something that you're that you're proud that you took that step to do it? That's a great question. I absolutely am. There is not probably a single thing that I have not, you know, included. Let me put it this way. When you accomplish something that you know that is something you've really fought and strive for and you accomplish that like it's one thing what it means to you but what it means to people around you you can't you can't quantify that type of exhilaration um that that validation for all the sacrifice and people say sacrifice we're talking like giving your body to a sport and making yourself vulnerable of all types of you know severe injuries because it's what you have to do to go into a space that no one's ever been in you don't break a world record if someone's broken the world record before you know like when you know running 11 seconds like yeah it's common now but nobody knew how the body would react at that time with a prosthetic, you know, you just didn't know, um, you know, and, you know, there's a few scars to show. Well, okay. That thing going to work next. It's been very proud because my family has been proud of it. They, um, I mean, you know, small town, Thatcher, Utah, Thatcher, Utah, you know, in school in Tremont, Utah, I'm Bear River. I'm at McKinley elementary. I'm North, North Utah. You know, it was, it just, it, it, it made my family proud and it made me more curious as uh, elder adult now. It's made me more curious to go back and learn a lot of things that people haven't really known. Just even since the Hall of Fame, what I've gone to, um, you know, to, to make myself vulnerable and, you know, and, and reach out to, to family that, you know, was there and actually took care of me that I never knew was there. And that was reaching out to my African-American side. And it's been very, uh, it's, it's, it's been very rewarding. It's, I mean, it's amazing to listen to you. And so often, you know, we on the Paralympic side, like, you know, they see my wheelchair, they see your prosthetic and, and it's like, oh, well, you've overcome so much. And, and sometimes that's frustrating in that, they miss what you're doing, you know, what you, what you've perfected. So you have it kind of in a twofold kind of way in that you've got the prosthetic side and then you've got the history side where people often say, I mean, literally like I, I did a speech this week and, and I came off the stage and this woman said to me, she said, you know, thank you so much. I needed to hear that. My, my son just committed suicide to, to, uh, to, months ago. And, and what I said to her was, you know what, so often people say to you, I could never imagine what you've gone through. And, and the problem is that if I say that I could never imagine what you've gone through, 
then in a lot of ways you're you're alone in it. We're not sharing in that in that experience. So with regard to to these these two experiences, how do you how do you reconcile that? How do you find a way to be able to connect with people to say, yes, this is what I've experienced, but this is who I am. First part of that question is really it's really kind of funny. Just when you'd asked, you know, said about, you know, we don't look at our dis- disabilities <laughs> in the same light. Um, my father had asked me a question not but two, three weeks ago, and it was like, okay, if you were to name your top 10 injuries you've had, and I was just going over just a couple of them. And then about 10 minutes later, I was like, you know, Dad, I didn't even realize I never even brought up the fact that I got a foot cut off by a lawnmower. I'm not kidding. It just <laughs> doesn't cross my mind. I'm like, hmm, well, you know, I mean, I only have one Achilles. Remember that rupturing in 2008 finals? I mean, I blew that ab out, blew that ab out, you know, this shoulder. But it was, um, it's, you know, but I, but I'm fortunate because I, and that's just being honest. I'm very fortunate that I lost my 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 foot when I did because I was able to grow up learning motor mechanics. You know, it wasn't as traumatic as, you know, what we've worked with. And I know you have, and I know we've worked a lot with them, with our, you know, with our, with our wounded warriors, our soldiers. Um, and, you know, and so there's always this, like, not as bad as, and we're saying, when you're at Walter Reed and like, they're looking at somebody who's missing a foot and saying, oh, that's just, <laughs> that's just a nick. Like, it kind of brings things to perspective. But when it comes to being able to be relatable, you know, Chris, I'll be honest with you, not everyone could do what you're able to do. To have, you know, somebody, you know, a lady come and say something like that is why there are certain people that are just really great at not, I mean, not, I mean, I'm not going to even say motivational, just inspirational. And to inspire and to have that comfort and confidence in yourself to be able to, you know, have, you know, that connection to where, you know, somebody like myself, that's always been one of the harder things that I've had to work on overcoming is we only get, I, sorry, we, I would say that we get, you know, the, you know, the, the traumatic stories. Like I've been with, you know, you know, able-bodied professional athletes that are big ones are the big ones. And, you know, they're getting an autograph and it's like, you know, I have a child that's cancer and lost foot, you know, can you get a leg, that kind of stuff, you know, and, and we've done everything we can on, you know, and I know I have always, always, you know, done everything I could, but, you know, with hardware and, but there's only so much um, that, you know, a person can do that. It becomes more of a mental state of mind. And that's something that I don't, you know, that I don't care how good of an athlete you think you are or how, you know, it's something that, you know, I know that is a constant battle for me to work on and, you know, being able to find those resources to, to know that, you know, others, you know, are like me, that they struggle with, you know, being able to, you know, accept how much, you know, hurt and pain, and, 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 and trauma that parents go through, that children go through, um, you know, that my outlet was my greatest gift. And that was the gift of being able to run, to change people's perceptions in 11 seconds and not say a word. It's, 
amazing to be able to do something that is visual, not based off of any judgment. It is start to finish. And even when you're you know, leading the pack for 10 years, you still have a clock that is still your ultimate judge. And to do that with, with integrity, which, you know, it's something that, you know, a lot of that can be um, a struggle in sports for a lot of people. Um, and just to know that um, you can reach so many people in such a small, finite amount of time just by sprinting, that's a piece that I, that I, that I definitely am and am never going to let myself forget about. And I say that because when I lost my first world record, which sounds like kind of ignorant, but like I hadn't lost a hundred meter race in 10 years. I mean, when I lost that world record, it instantly made me redefine like really what did the world record mean to me? And I looked over at my medal and I was like, that's something no one could ever take away. Not me. <laughs> You know, and, and, it, and it gave it so much more worth um, and it mattered and it mattered more. And it just gave me a better reflection on what, you know, I was a part of and what I was able to contribute. Um, well, it was just very nice to be able to change the heart and souls of a lot of people in as short amount of time as possible. I, I've heard you say in the past that that like having a family is something that, that, that has been scary, that had been scary. I don't know if it still is, but hypothetically speaking, like if you were to have a child, what would you say to that child as this is the most important thing? This is the thing that you need to do. I would have to say, stay true to your convictions. Keep your integrity. And no matter how many times you fail, just make sure that you did it honestly, that you never took a shortcut, that you did it not only for yourself, but you did it for others to be able to find reasons for them to emulate, to inspire you to continue to go on. And just remember that life is always a rhetorical situation. People that think they inspire us they're the ones that truly inspire us. It, it, it's exactly, I mean, it's really, ultimately you're talking about this sense of the human experience in so many ways, right? Is that you can't determine where you start, but you can determine where you're going from there and, and be able, even in the most difficult situations to live your life with integrity. And in a lot of ways to be proud of the scars that you've accumulated along the way for that reason. Does that make sense? It's correct. But I just need to take note that you just asked me the hardest question I've ever been asked in my life. <laughs> I apologize. Did, did I tell you that when you were coming on that that was gonna happen? You just had me go. <laughs> this that was, is thank you. I appreciate that. I love being challenged. Obviously I love being challenged. Are you what we do it is it, it is totally true and it's but it but it is it's it's so interesting just for me to have to have been a friend and to have been able to see how you approach 
the problem, right? And and the problem, you know, in some ways is how do I run a sub 11 second hundred meter? But it's probably a bigger problem in that how do I run as fast as I can possibly run? And the way I and, and the way that I would be able to, um, you know, and sorry to cut you off there because you just, you know, I always made made sure I was a part of the solution, you know, and 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 I made. And I don't want to bring money into it, but I made a pretty big financial decision when I got into disabled sports. I, you know, I went with the small company, as I'd mentioned before, for a reason. And that really, there's none of this would have had happened had I not had no, did not do that. I didn't have this group of people around me or, you know, parents that were, you know, and, you know, like, in, you know, professional athletes or it, it just, it just needed to be done a little bit better. It needed to be done a little bit differently. Um, not only as far as like the design, it's just not all designs fit one person. You know, everyone's got different shapes. I'm a six foot one 198 pound athlete at the time and a sprinter jumper it just doesn't make sense um but i had to always be a part of the solution and it could come across you know wrongly but it is you know i'm one that's strapped myself onto a formula one you know race car that's strapped to my leg you know making sure it's like is there's as least interference between my skin and bones than the carbon fiber there could be to take out any type of variables you know less moving parts make it more efficient make it to where i could see my you know see my components and i knew where their advantages were over me and i would train to take advantage of where their disadvantages was and that was you know me coming out of the blocks there was things that may seem subtle but were absolutely huge in um in you know in getting it down to where you know i'm breaking the world record by hundreds of a second you know 1109 1108 1106 1109 1107 11 there was no like oof, you know dropping like 107 you know my my world record ended up being a 1086 10.86 seconds um and that took oof, over 11 years my world record in 2000 was 11.09 seconds you know and that you know and it took a lot of perfect conditions but to be a part of the solution sorry to kind of go off a little bit there no, but to be perfect. a part of the solution is is the only way that i was ever ever able to handle um handle a problem that had to do with my athletics and sports this is a question about both sports and life in general. I, I think I used to think that confidence was based on what I could do, that if I was good enough, that I had confidence in that. And, and I think going through my accident, going through the recovery after my accident reminded me or showed me that it, it wasn't necessarily what I could do. It was knowing that I could handle whatever was going to come toward me. That, that I could keep going and, and find a solution. What's your definition of confidence? For me, I was most confident when I had the distractions of training, when I had something to work for every day 
to stay mentally occupied, to stay challenged and challenging, you know, every single thing that I could do that would be, you know, be able to make me a better, you know, to make me a better athlete, which isn't always about, you know, training harder. It's usually about training smarter and, you know, understanding recovery and being willing to, you know, bring in all these different, you know, minds and just kind of take a little from there, a little from there and kind of, you know, mirror together. And I don't really know how to separate the two because my athletics gave me confidence in my personal life. It's, you know, let's be very simple. Um, you know, most people saw me walking down the street would not know I was an amputee unless I was wearing shorts. You know, you, you know, think about being 23, 24, you're, you know, on the date and you a lady and you're just like, Oh, by the way, you know, I got one leg, you know, those are, those are things that can be mortifying. Trust me, I've been in a couple of situations where you're just like, well, just just don't ever take it off in front of me. Is, is that how you'd bring it up on a date? Hey, by the way, I just have one leg. I just usually try to date fans. They already know. <laughs> that is funny. No, but I mean, there, I mean, there, there, you know, there, there is. There, I mean, there is a lot to there is a lot to be said about the question that you asked. And the one thing I can tell you is that, you know, very seldom do people have the answer. I have my answer and my truth. My truth is very simple that I was not a confident person when I, when I, when I was off the track, if I didn't have track, I would have not had the confidence that most people thought I had, you know, I went through a pretty, you know, you know, horrible situation as a junior where I had to have my, my leg, uh, a revision done and, and that's where they, you know, took off a couple more inches on my leg and they put it in a cast and, you know, like not to get too graphic, but it didn't smell too good and trying to go to school and, you know, wearing crutches. Um, and, and I can say this, you'll never find a photo of me. Oh, I don't want to challenge the internet to do it now, but maybe you'll never find a photo of me with my leg actually truly off. So, you know, so yeah, as confident as I am and had to be, but there are still things that are, you know, not confident about. And I would never take my leg off on camera, have a photo be able to be taken while I actually had my, my, my residual limb exposed. Um, and it's, you know, I'm not saying that's a commendable thing or something anyone else should do. It's just, you know, by the end of the day, it's a human, it's a human response to be able to have turmoil between how you find that balance and, you know, and not feel that you have to do it all. Why is that? Because I mean, you are a vulnerable guy. Uh, you know, you're, you, you, I mean, you're, you're a tremendous champion, but at the same time, you're willing to be vulnerable. Why, why is that such a sacred place or, or the thing that you're keeping from the public eye? I didn't trust the way that I would be marketed. I didn't trust the ability to, because I wasn't looking for endorsements that were your traditional, you know, um, here's some product. I mean, I was harking after Fortune 50 companies, Fortune 100 companies, you know, like those kind of things aren't, oh, you have, you have the best agent in the world. That doesn't mean, and, and most of the stuff I did, I didn't have an agent, um, you know, I, did a lot of my own photo shoots. 
I did a lot of my own prints and then I'd present it to them. This is how you market me. Because to leave it to them, like it's like going to be this soft, you know, like how, how do you market something you hadn't seen before? How do you, you know, change the mindset of somebody like me? Like when I went and saw these amputees, I was like, that was weird. And I'm saying like, it was just like, that was my own ignorance, but I hadn't been around it. But in the same sense, like, you know, I want to be sexy. I want to be strong. I want to look as confident as I feel. And I want to show my full silhouette, my full body. And I want it to be long, strong, and powerful. But I want it to be done right. And at that time, and we're talking decades ago. Yeah, no, that's for sure. It didn't, you know, it didn't really exist in my, my sport, you know, because even though we're both, you know, Paralympians and, and disabled sports, you're saying stuff like that. Like, it's just different. Like, the, you guys, I mean, come on, you, you guys just kill it. I mean, it, it's just different. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, you're talking about what, what a lot of the athletes talk about, too, like removing the sense of sympathy, the sense of pity. And, and the pity probably more than the sympathy, right? Of like, don't, don't feel sorry for me. Uh, you know, but also at the same time, it's, it's you're demonstrating an ability for people to learn from your journey too. And, and, and that journey of, you know, it's so funny. Overcoming is one of those things that I have a bit of an issue with where people are like, oh, you overcame it. And it's like, no, like I, it's, it's a constant struggle. I mean, we're in a constant struggle and the myth of overcoming is, is exactly that is the, is the myth. And, and it's like, no, I have to show up tomorrow and I have to do it all again tomorrow in order to prove to myself, in order to prove to everybody else that this is who I am. There were parts that you did well in your sport. How did you approach the things that you did well, because you were a great starter, right? And, right? and how do you take that and then the things that you might not necessarily do as well? I mean, one's a differentiator and two, you know, that might be the parts that you have to, that you have to figure out how to get better or how to minimize your losses sometimes as well. You know, looking at where the athletes are, you know, today, you know, say since, you know, let's just say since 2012, because that was a really big deciding factor <laughs> while this sport just went, <laughs> took a huge leap. I didn't know how not to compete. You know, I don't regret it, but I definitely, you know, definitely put myself through a lot more. Uh, I put myself through a lot more than, if I were to say, just be a hundred meter specialist, what would happen? Um, what if I were just to be a one and two hundred meter specialist, what would happen? I'm training for the 100, the 200, the long jump, the high jump and the four by one. My goal the was- four by to, four. I remember you doing a four by four trial when we were in Chula Vista, right? Which was, what was that? Was, was that distance based that you guys went out and were measuring who could, to figure out who was on the team, right? Who could go the furthest? That was the, that was the uh, second worst decision I've ever made in my athletic career. <laughs> that was the first one. The second one was to actually run a four by four in Spain. 
I'm not a, yeah, I'm not a distance runner. But what did you say after, after that trial? Do you remember? I do not. You said that killed me and I didn't want any of them to see that it actually hurt. That would be absolutely, absolutely what I would say. And I, and I, and, and, and it's, and the only reason I wouldn't be able to recall that specifically, because I was probably going through like a massive lactation. <laughs> no, but I uh, went through that experience in Athens where I just didn't want people to ever see me lose, you know? And so I guess one thing I never did is got into an event that I didn't have a chance of winning in. I never did anything and and this will probably come across you know distasteful for for a lot and i have you know apologize that we don't think the same on this but i never allowed myself to participate in a sport to participate in an event and you know that's really if you know you look back you know chris yeah especially since you've seen the whole you know, whole athletic side full circle from beginning to, to end is I never wanted to participate and would never allow myself to just participate in the event. I said something that offended another athlete. Unfortunately, I said, number two is not a winner. Number three, no one remembers. And it was, it just, it's just a mentality of where my mind was because I didn't deal with getting silvers and something that I knew I was the best at, at world events. Um, I wouldn't have changed that either, but there's a, there's a place for certainty. There's, there's a place for that kind of mindset. It's just, there's no time to, to like, to make up for, you know, for any mistakes that might be made in a race. I mean, it's a hundred meter dash. So it's fastest you know, think person in the world, like there's just no distance, no time to make any adjustments. You know, everything in that race has to be, which is repetition is a form of emphasis. There's no, the, you know, the, 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 the starting noise goes off and you just react. It's all muscle memory, all you know, yeah. And anyone that does anything great, I, you know, I was watching earlier today, which I love watching these on YouTube are like skilled workers. <laughs> so weird. When you just see people that are just like really great at the job that they do. And they're just like, you see like somebody like lay a brick and it's like, and there's like speckle, speckle, speckle. Next. <laughs> like, you just got to do nothing but just enjoy like how great people can be at no matter what it is. And just know that like, you know, that, that is something to be darn proud of, but perfected your craft really. I mean, that's what, that's what sports about, right? It's it perfecting is. your craft, but you guys as hundred meter guys, there's no room for recovery. So you guys are the gunslingers out there. Like it's, if, if you make a, if you make a mistake, it's over, right? Correct. It's, I mean, at that level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I won I won 2004, I think, by two hundredths of a second. 0.02. Now, and you knew, right? When you crossed the line. Oh, I knew. I knew. knew. I knew. I knew. I well, yeah, I knew. But even if I didn't know, I was going to make sure that was a shot. <laughs> the number one in the air. <laughs>
No, but I, I knew, I knew where I was at in that space and time. And that's where it kind of, you know, can get a little bit, um, you know, complicated, really go into like the nuances of just like that self-awareness, perception, all that. But I will say this with Oscar uh, running in the 200, when, you know, relating to that 400, I was just like, I was not going to let anybody see me hurt. I've never wanted to pull out of a race more in my life than when I saw that 200, because I had been working for, oh, for four, well, five years, for five years to break Brian Fraser's 200 meter world record. And I was there. I'd already tied it at Paris, at Paris uh, uh, World Championships. Like I was ready to break the world record. And I see this guy take off in prelims. We got rounds, all these rounds, right? See this guy take off. I'm in the heat behind him. And I, all I see is like, gun go. Brian takes off. Brian, take it off. Is he Oscar? Looks back at the starter guy because he was like, Oh, I wasn't ready. <laughs> so he's like, oh. He took off like 10 meters. He was about, Brian must have been 10, 12 meters ahead of him before he even like left the blocks. And all I see is Brian Frazier, the world record holder, the fastest guy in the world. And this guy not only catch him, pass him and destroy him by like 15 meters. And I just remember Describe looking at the one. difference too between Brian, you and Brian and Oscar. As well, Brian as and the, I would be all that. I mean, we'd be the same, you know, like we're, but with Oscar, like I didn't know Oscar. That was the thing is I didn't know who Oscar was. No, but between like single amputee versus a double amputee as well. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's definitely um, a, a huge difference, <laughs> you know? So anything that you do in sports, you really want to have, you know, symmetry. And so there's really, there's really no symmetry when you're a bilateral amputee. You try to get as as symmetrical as you possibly can. Um, you know, people associate you know prosthetics in sports being bionic and all these other things. They're not. It's a kinetic device. There's no actuators. You know, I'm not going to get all into a bunch of science talk. You know, I'm not Bill Nye the Marlin guy. <laughs> but you're not returning more energy. It's not giving you more energy than you're putting into it. Exactly. Exactly. But when you're able to manipulate your stride length, your trochanter length, your height, it's a different, it's a different class. It's a different race. Um, you know, I, there's, there's no real way I would say, oh, this is fair. And that's not fair. I just know that they're two separate, you know, classifications, two separate events, two separate gold medals, two separate world records. And that's just, you know, and that's, that's even when I was, I mean, I was beating double amputees like left and right. I mean, totally a Vulpin test. Again, it's the greatest amputee sprinter I've ever seen was not only a bilateral, or I mean, sorry, he was yeah, bilateral amputee. He was also bilateral arm amputee. And, you know, but he was regulated on what he could do on height and stuff. And so, you know, and so with, with Oscar at that point in time, I didn't have time to process what was happening. I just knew, well, I just saw Fraser, the world record holder, just get caught up to, ran down and destroyed. And I know I'm going to break the world record, which I ended up doing in the finals because, of course, I'm not going to quit. But I end up breaking the world record, beating Brian, but I still lost by like 10 meters. And, and it's not a me thing. And I want to really emphasize this because I know this is kind of going all over the place. I want to go back to like what the marketing idea was behind where 
I always kept my, my foundation. When I went and saw my first disabled sports competition, when I went to my first Paralympics, I was confused. I've had multiple conversations with the, with international, let's just say IPC and people of the likes and stuff, because it's confusing for, you know, for, for, for the audience, for our fans. I mean, in Sydney 2000, I mean, that was like the first time the games were going to be shown live stream, internet, network TV. I mean, there was a lot going on. I mean, Atlanta was covered really, really well, but like this was a big, big deal. And it was a beautiful stadium. I mean, great fan turnout. Love Australia. You guys are amazing. Amazing. And it's just confusing. Wait, you just had a guy break a world record, but get a silver and the guy gold, but then it's, it's confusing. And so it's more of just allowing, you know, the sport to, can, to have hopefully been progressing where it was, where there was the ability to have your individualization within your classification. Because I could tell you, if I had seen what some of these bilaterals have done to a unilateral, I probably would have never really gotten into the sport. I, I actually would have never probably sprinted. Just the way I am. Like, I would have never had a chance. You know, like, when I saw Oscar, it wasn't a matter of, like, oh, that's cheating or, you know, oh, he's, you know, better athlete than me. It's just like, I know he's not a better athlete than me. I know most of them are better athlete than me. I know they're not training harder. I know they're not recovering better. I know they're not doing all these other things. I just know that there are just certain things that are just need to be regulated and, 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 and it is what it is. And it just comes down to the fact of it makes a sport more confusing. I can be honest, I'm even a little bit confused on some of the stuff that's going on. T46s and stuff like, but you know, these guys have stepped up these, you know, and, and the sports gone back to where it was when Tony Volpin test was competing to where they actually lowered his legs in Atlanta. They actually lowered him down and they had it, they had a, they had a measurement and why that kind of went away after like say 2006 and seven and on is where like, okay, I'm not sitting there and trying to, you know, harp on, oh, this needs to change. It was already there before. Why did we walk away from that? And then why did we digress to where, you know, it's still confusing. And we saw that in 2012, as you said, where Oscar went through the whole process of petitioning, of, of, of basically suing to get into the Olympics. They regulated his leg length, which as a bilateral amputee, you do have a far greater range of how long your legs can be. And then I remember watching the 200 meters when he came to the Paralympics. He went and ran in the Olympics, came to the Paralympics, and you're watching Oscar and he's in the middle of the track and Oliveira went flying by him on stilts in some way. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, there weren't really stilts, but, but what looked like much, much longer legs. And it, it's hard to have that argument, but I think the regulation that you're talking about and really ultimately what you're talking about is having, having a level playing field, which is, we know is the greatest thing to achieve or greatest difficulty in sport, right? Because I mean, you say you're six, 190 pounds and that's what you are. You know, you could be five, six and 130 pounds. And, and how do you work in sport? I and mean, that's one of the challenges in sport. In 2008, 
you, as you mentioned earlier, you blew out your Achilles. You said it was all about finishing first, but you made it to the finish line. You only have one Achilles. So you didn't have the ability to, to hop. Why was it so important for you to make it to the finish line in 2008? For that year, I almost died. I was in the hospital for almost a month. I'd went in to get my knee scope. Uh, two years prior, world championships, I blew my knee out. Uh, Lay got stuck in the sand, completely ruptured, or you know, tore my ACL. It's one of the ligaments. Um, but I had that uh, replaced with an allograph. I came back within nine months from an ACL um, uh, replacement uh, and won world championships on outdoor world championships. Um, you know, so I just needed to get some of the meniscus, you know, cleaned out. Things are catching, get a little clicky. And it was just a simple scope. I got MRSA. Um, it was the hardest thing I ever went through because I just kept it was asking, staph infection, MRSA. Yes. Yeah, yeah. For people. Okay. Yes. And I had, had pick line in each arm. I was on drops. I mean, it was bad. And that went on for almost what, three, three and a half months. And all I was asking for, because I'm not a super religious person, but, you know, you know, that's sometimes called for desperate measures. <laughs> just asking just for, and this might give you a little bit more context of like, you know, what I said to you after the 400 of being just true to myself when it comes to my, my, um, you know, my, my trueness to sport is I just asked for just the, this, this, oh, this, this crushing feeling in my chest to just feel comfortable knowing I wasn't going to, to Beijing. That's all I wanted, not to recover, to go back and to compete, just to feel good that I wasn't going to be making the team. Um, you know, and so in 2008, when I said earlier in our um, in our conversation that some of the some of the baddest worst decisions I made on you know in my sport was I did not know how not not to compete. That would be another one. I you know put myself in a really bad situation because I you know felt good about six about seven weeks before the games. Good as far as like uh, you know I'd only lost like you know 21 pounds. <laughs> but I bustle memory is a crazy thing, you know, was able to put the weight back on, was able to, you know, like, I mean, you're, you're, you're trained, like your body just knows how to do this. And so like all of my numbers were there, like my numbers were there to win the gold, were there to, you know, challenge the world record, my world record. I mean, mind you, since 2000, since the first time I won that race, I'd never lost it until, until 2008. And it took me rush from my Achilles, but on the, on the medical side of it, well, I've been pretty aggressive with some of the medical stuff that I've done. And usually it was around, well, just wait, just make, just asking enough people until they said, yeah, we'll do it. You know? So you could get the right answer. Everybody's telling you, no, 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 no. And my you answer, found yeah. the one person. Yeah. And we did great things and nothing, and nothing, you know, went badly. It's just that, uh, you know, ligaments are a crazy thing. Uh, you know, they're, uh, 
doesn't matter how big, strong you are and how much you come back, you know, the medication that they were, they were putting in me to, um, you know, to, to kill this staph infection, um, I was also making my ligaments uh, weaker. And so like, yeah, but who was going to tell me, no, it's 110% on me. I made the decision. Just no one was going to tell me no. And I could tell you, there's no, let me say, if I was going to go out on the track, that's the way I would have gone out. Chris, there's a whole nother reason of 2008 that no one knows what really was around 2008. In 2005, I made the decision. 2008, I was retiring from curling. It's like I had a plan, had a plan. And I hadn't really had any of my plans on the track ever not work out. Actually, not any of them not work out really. Um, but I was, I was in the middle of getting ready to start training for the skeleton. And there was one thing about the skeleton that was really enticing to me is that once your feet are off the track, it's all fair game. <laughs> when that knows me knows I love fast, crazy. And, you know, I'm from Utah, you know, and so that there was a lot of disappointment around 2008 when my Achilles went. Um, you know, there was another athlete in the race that said I faked it, you know, regardless of the scar, the snapping, like there's just like, there's just a lot of, um, it was, it was like, I was so looking forward to 2008 because I was so looking forward to, to, uh, you know, trying to make the team, um, and there's, there was another athlete that was, you know, skilled in that sport, uh, that I was talking to and, you know, had conversations with about, you know, about skeleton but that was you know really like my transition in sport and so when the achilles went and hold on let's back up before you say that so you're talking about skeleton so you're talking about going from being a paralympic sprinter there's no skeleton in the paralympics so if you were going to move into the into skeleton which is basically getting on a sled and going head first down the bobsled track. And the sprinting part is a huge part of your success in that sport. So you were talking about going from the Paralympics, being a sprinter to effectively sprinting for a shorter period of time and then throwing yourself onto a sled and hurling down at, you know, 90 miles an hour or, or whatever down the bobsled track. Right. Okay. I think it's a great idea. It was a great idea. <laughs> The one thing that a lot of people didn't know is like down in Tula Vista where I trained at, we actually had a uh, track for, for push. Like that's where bobsled trained. That's where skeleton trained. I mean, I, I was able to have a sled there and work on push mechanics with right hand on sled and push. And there's designs on the feet that were going to be changing that would be able to bring the toe up a little bit more so it wouldn't get caught. The biggest thing was just the aerodynamical factor of the arch on the back, but you know, it was a natural transition, you know, and this is well before there was really any, you know, like, you know, any extreme sports, you know, in the, in the, in the winter, you know, Paralympics and anything like that. I mean, this wasn't something I was like, oh, snap decision. This started back in 2005, the end of 2005. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say, I mean, Jimmy Shea, he was, uh, you know, at my, my place in, uh, in, in down in San Diego. And, you know, just had a, you know, conversation and just like, you know, just like, well, how would this work? I was also working with a manager at the time who was, you know, in skeleton, um, you know, when he was an athlete as well, uh, you know, so there was a lot of just me being me, just having a really small circle of just the kind of the people that I could kind of like pick their brain on, but not really super divulge what it was that I had. 
you know, going on in the back of my mind because uh, I didn't want anybody to like sit there and say no, because then it would have been like, well, <laughs> next. Uh, but no, it would have, it was, I, I just, I mean, I really just thought it would, I mean, I wanted to do it because I, I, I thought it'd be awesome. You know, I mean, it, that, that was nothing else but that. It wasn't about, you know, being the first Paralympian to be in the Olympics and all that other kind of stuff. I mean, there's already been, you know, we've already had those. Um, it wasn't about a first in anything. It was just for the love of sport. And my goodness gracious, like how fun would that be to be competing and everything to be a completely fair game once your feet are off the track? Because at that time, you're going into like controversies where, you know, when you have an amputee start being able-bodied people, oh, oh, oh man, can't have that. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. All of a sudden, now you're cheating. The only thing I've never seen any professional athlete do is cut a limb off to gain an advantage. Now, we know that's for sure. So, this is why you needed to make it to the finish in 2008 in Beijing in the 100 meters. That was my last race. That was it. Whether, I mean, the injury wasn't even questioned. These contracts are signed years out. I mean, that was my last Paralympics. I mean, that's three Paralympics. And I mean, that was it. You know, the, the, I think one of the biggest uh, flaws that athletes have is they never really finish on top. We overstay our welcome. Um, and, you know, so like that was the only way to have a plan was to be able to have that set day. And, you know, obviously, you know, not to, you know, overcommit myself to something that I wouldn't even, you know, really, really be able to know there's test events that I was, you know, looking at setting up for, you know, you know, to get tests on the ice and stuff. But 2008 was my last race. Um, it was, uh, you know, not glorious, but it was as I got older and as I looked back at what really mattered as world records get broken and guys are doing things that are just like crazy athletes. I mean, goodness gracious, long jumping, like German world records and stuff. This is crazy. These guys are amazing athletes. Um, you know, like, you know, Brian Fraser is my best friend and, you know, to have an athlete come back for you that you, I mean, especially, I mean, he and I were rivals our whole career, uh, took all his goals in the 100 meter dash it's you know after 2000 and uh, you know at our you know world and uh paralympic events but you could just see and i don't know if you've actually seen a photo that i shared uh, a couple months ago but it was but it was a brian um and one of the uh the um uh the beijing uh staff you know they came out with a stretcher and he's like no stretcher this guy's not getting carried off on a stretcher and you know, you could just see like true sportsmanship, you know, regardless of all the other, you know, messes that went on. That's just true sportman, sportsmanship. And, um, you know, Brian and I have had a very contentious relationship. But what's really interesting is we always room together since 2000. You believe that? Because we had the same habits. We had the when we had the same habits. We went to bed at 9.30. We woke up at 6. We had breakfast at 6.45. We were creatures of the same repetition, same habit. 
all the people are out there sitting on their feet, going sightseeing or going up, wasting energy, playing cards, laughing, all that kind of stuff. Like we were just honed in and dedicated. I mean, you only have that moment once every four years. And it's hard to find people that have that same type of lifestyle as you do. Yeah. I mean, this is that Tanzanian runner in some ways, right? The, five, the marathon runner who, uh, who got injured in the middle of the marathon and ended up finishing in the dark and saying, you know, my country didn't didn't send me to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. And it sounds like that's exactly what you were doing as you were. I didn't know. And I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know even how to even respond to it. Like the, the amount of pain I was in. I mean, it was bad. I mean, my parents were, my mom came from the top of the stadium. How in the world she got on the track? I don't know. I mean, it's like 125,000, 120, that'd be at least a hundred thousand people, 80 to hundred. I think the state, well, Sydney had 125 capacity. I think they had around 105. This was Oscar Pistorius was in the race for crying out loud. This is like the race, Marlon Shirley versus Oscar Pistorius coming off of 2008. I mean, it was, it was, it was stacked in there. Um, but I just didn't know. I didn't know what to do. Like, there's no like willing me off on a cart. I didn't know any better. I never, I just, there, I just know that there's just, <laughs> I was, I, I just didn't know how to respond. I still don't even know how to talk about it. I just know that, thank goodness, I had a teammate, you know, Team USA, get me up and get me across that finish line because it probably would have been very, um, you know, uh, it would have been on my hands and knees, which would not have been, <laughs> I would not have been happy about looking back. If I was like crawling, <laughs> I would have been trying to hop on my prosthetic, <laughs> but I just don't know how to not finish a race. And I never knew how to not, not compete. Well, I think, unfortunately, that's the place where we're going to have to stop. You did get a shout out from another of your teammates, Joe Lamar said, Marlon, great stuff. Love you, brother. So, uh, so you're still getting getting the shout outs from your teammates. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much, so much other stuff that I that I wanted to get to, you know, what you're doing now, the Hall of Fame, all these things. I think we're just going to have to have you back. Is that OK? I would love that. I would love that. And, um, you know, I really appreciate anyone that's listening that, you know, help support me through the Hall of Fame. Just understand that you didn't just support me, you supported all of Team USA. And um, it is, you know, the, it's, it's, it was a very huge moment for me to learn a lot more about myself. And I could tell you, you know, to be able to, you know, have that honor of knowing that it was your peers, people like yourselves, Chris, that were a part of recognizing um, what, you know, what you did on the track, make some of the mistakes that were made off the track a little bit more tolerable. It's not all perfect, but I really look forward to earning that opportunity again. I think so. I mean, it, it, it's the Hall of Fame is so amazingly competitive. I mean, three Paralympians got in and 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 you can't make an argument against any of those any of those athletes. But at the same not enough time, votes. it's amazing to me to look at an athlete like you and say, I, I, I can't believe that you didn't get voted in. So. I'm, I'm hoping that it is just a matter of time because the hall, the hall needs you for what you've done for so many of the things that you've done and the example that you've been to so many athletes, myself included. I appreciate that. And I look forward to having uh, you having me back. 
Cool, buddy. I really appreciate it, Marlon. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. As usual, the greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in. Check it out. We'll have another great guest next week. This will be a traditional podcast when that comes out. I hope you get a chance to listen to it again or to tell your friends about it. Please like us and follow us, and we'll try to reach as many people as possible with as many great stories as we can. Thanks. Until next time, see you soon.